Welcome to another ARCS chat. My name is Robin Bauer Kilgo. I am the Association Manager for ARCS. Uh, before we get started in today's very exciting conversation on fire, um, I wanted to let you guys have some information that there is a bit of a delay between when we talk and when this actually gets ported out to YouTube. So heads up on that. If you want to participate in the chat, please make sure you are signed in to your Google or YouTube account. And um, also for ARCS, we're going to have a thing called a military meetup on November 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. So if you're interested in joining and talking to other folks who deal with military collection, go over to our website, arcsinfo.org, and you can sign up to be a part of that meeting. So I'm going to go ahead and turn off my mic for just a little bit and hand the start of this conversation over to John Robinette and Becca Kennedy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of ARCS Chats, and uh, thanks for bearing with our uh, delay, our week delay because of uh, elections here in the United States. We do hope that everybody um, is healthy and safe at the moment uh, as we continue to experience our, you know, lockdown situations. Um, so today, yes, we're going to discuss fire prep preparation and prevention, but more importantly, we're going to talk about uh, the, the ways in which we misunderstand our current methods. So joining us to discuss this is Michael Kilby, the Associate Director for Fire Protection at the Smithsonian, Washington, DC. Betsy Severance, the Head Registrar at the Getty um, in Los Angeles. And Jared Yaks, uh, Firefighter and Collections Curator and Offsite Facilities Manager at the Tri-Cities Historical Museum in Grand Haven, Michigan firefighter and collections person. I mean, what a unicorn. So um, lastly, but not leastly, uh, joining us to co-host today is uh, Rebecca Kennedy, uh, independent registrar in Washington, DC, and also the chair of the ARCS Programming Subcommittee uh, and Collections uh, Emergency Specialist. So as Robin mentioned, Please, uh, if you have any questions for the panel, as we uh, continue our conversation, put that in the chat, sign into your Google or Gmail account and uh, throw it on up there. Let us know where you're from. And uh, without any further ado, let's get started. Um, my first question I have is for Michael and um, wanted to take kind of a macro perspective on things. So uh, can you tell us about some historic fires that maybe have changed how we approach uh, fire prevention and, and how they've affected that, uh, that change. Okay. Yeah. I was giving some thought to this and, um, unfortunately there's no shortage of museum fires that we can learn from. And every, just about every year there's a major museum fire and just in the United States alone, we have about 70 museum fires a, a year. So, um, but most of them, you know, don't make the headlines. Um, one of the first fires I thought of was the uh, Museum of Modern Art in Rio de Janeiro that had a fire back in 1978. 90% um, of the collections were destroyed in that fire. Uh, they believed it was caused by either a cigarette or an electrical fault. Um, you know, didn't have any sprinklers, didn't have smoke detection, didn't have fire separations. Um, but one of the main lessons we learned from that fire was, you know, the building was non-combustible construction, concrete, glass, and steel. And there was, a, a, you know, an attitude that, well, this building's not going to burn because it's non-combustible. 
Unfortunately, that was really a real misconception because, you know, the contents of the museum and the collections are combustible. And that's why they lost 90% of their collections. Um, another fire I thought about was the San, San Diego Aerospace Museum. I think that was back in 1988. I, no, no, 19, I think it was 1988, actually. I'm not sure. Maybe 1978. Sorry. Can't remember now. But it was about a $16 million loss. Um, the building was wood and stucco. Um, Total, the museum was totally destroyed by fire. Um, the only collection I, that was left over was a piece of moon rock. Everything else was destroyed. Um, and there, there was an assumption that, you know, the fire department responded within four minutes of the fire being reported, but still wow. the entire museum was destroyed. So um, you know, no matter how quickly your fire department can respond, how close they are, uh, you know, that was a misconception that, that well, we're, we're right next to the fire department. We're going to be okay. We don't need to do anything else. Um, and then closer to home for me was our um, Museum of American History at Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Uh, we had uh, probably one of our most severe fires in 1970. Um, the museum was relatively new, um, probably less than five years old. And uh, we had an electrical fire in an exhibit hall. Uh, you know, back then we didn't put sprinklers in our museums. We didn't have smoke detection. Um, we did, however, have uh, firewalls and what we call passive fire protection, where we divided up the building into sections using fire-rated construction. Um, that fire did about a million dollars worth of damage. We had smoke spread throughout the museum but the fire was contained to one exhibit hall and it was contained because we had fire rated walls and we had a set of fire doors that were closed to prevent the fire from spreading to the rest of the museum. So there's some examples of, um, you know, fires that we've learned from in the past. I, um, I, those are super interesting. What I found especially interesting was that they're all decades old um meaning that they uh they they had a really a strong chance of influencing like for example my first thought was you know you mentioned that several of these didn't have sprinklers or smoke detectors when did that become uh common i think it's still becoming common really um, and it really depends on who you what i find is it really depends on who you talk to out in the museum world uh, i think there's still a lot of misconceptions about sprinklers and you know, I still hear comments like, well, what's worse, fire or having sprinklers discharge? Yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes you even see that in news articles where where the press says, well, you know, thank good they didn't have thank goodness they didn't have sprinklers because you know then we would have had water damage too. <laughs> right. Um, but I think uh, for us the eye opener was that American History Museum fire. And after that, that's when actually the Smithsonian started their fire protection program which, you know, that's what I'm, I run now. And that's when we start to retrofit all of our buildings, you know, including the historic ones with, with sprinklers. Um, I think the U S um, is adopting, uh, you know, the concept of protecting museums with sprinklers faster than some other parts of the world. Uh, from what I see. Um, uh, I think you like in Europe, they still, um, 
put more emphasis on fire prevention than on fire suppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do a great job with fire prevention. Um, so it's, it's different in different parts of the world. I, um, so, you know, as you know, this is, this is sort of a, a setup question because the, uh, the next part of it is the, um, you know, what you're actually, you know, very famous for. I, I don't know if you know how famous you are, but, um, you know, uh, I didn't know I was famous. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah. We're, um, you, uh, were part of the team that developed the NFPA 909 fire code, uh, which, um, I'm kind of curious if some of that code came out of some of these historic fires. Um, can you tell us about what that code is and how, uh, maybe it developed? Sure. Well, I mean, th- that code definitely was developed long before I joined the committee. But um, so NFPA is National Fire Protection Association, and they have probably a couple hundred codes, at least a few hundred codes on various things. But uh, um, and there's a committee that develops each of these codes. Um, the committee I'm on is called the Cultural Resources Committee. And we actually have two codes we're responsible for. One is NFPA 909. That's uh, this code right here. And it's the uh, code for protection of cultural resource properties. And that includes museums, libraries, and places of worship. Uh, The other code that we're responsible for is NFPA 914. And that's the code for the protection of historic structures. now, I went back through the history. That code was, was used to be called the Protection of Our Heritage, and it, it was first published, I think, in 1948, so long before my time. Um, I couldn't identify a specific fire or event that spurred the, the creation of that code. You know, not like some other codes, like Life Safety Code, there's specific fires that uh, really spurred the development of those codes. Um, but I can tell you from my experience with being on the committee is that, you know, these, especially these major fires, definitely have an impact on the committee and what goes into the code. We try to learn from each of these fires um, and make sure that the guidance in the code is addressing um, you know, the hazards and the risks that museums face. Does, um, insurance, what, how does, how does that code, uh, you know, respond to insurance and vice versa? Oh, okay. So everyone else on this as well too, because like, you know, Betsy, for example, and, and Jared and your institutions, you're probably dealing with similar, you know, constraints between, you know, balancing insurance requests and requirements, uh, as well. So, you know, that, that's a great yeah. question. And maybe before I actually answer that, let me, let me just backtrack a little bit on, on that code. So each of these codes, including the, the NFP 909 are considered a consensus code. So the committee that develops a code comes from various sectors of society. Um, like I, I, I'm considered as Smithsonian, we're considered a, a user of that code, but we also have, you know, authorities having jurisdiction, you know, fire department personnel like Jared. Um, we have people from the insurance industry on that code. Uh, we have people from fire protection system manufacturers on that code. So we, it, they really try to have a balanced cross-section of society in terms of you know, providing input in developing that code. Um, 
I know we had one representative from Chubb Insurance on our committee. Um, so we do get input from the insurance industry. Um, and actually when we revise the code, we put it out for public input as well. So anyone can provide input uh, on these codes. So I kind of, I look at us as, um, you know, our committee kind of partnering with insurance. Um, one thing to point out is that, you know, the purpose of NFB 909 is to protect not only your building, but your contents and your continuity of, of operations, uh, which is different than your normal just building codes that everyone has to follow. You now your building codes are concerned with two things, firefighter safety and life safety. Um, you know, you do get some benefits of property protection from it, but that is not a goal of your like national building codes. Uh, so that's why we advocate for museums to use uh, NFPA 909. Uh, so, Michael, that I think the 909 is a great resource for prevention, and I think it provides a lot of insight into like things we don't think about, like how to store our material, um, even our storage material, um, egresses, things like that that are very specific to cultural institutions. But I, um, I'd be interested to hear from Betsy and Jared about if they've applied this to their cultural institution, and if so, how does it affect like Betsy with wildfires? as well as Jared with just regular collections management as a firefighter. Have you had, have you used these codes? Have they provide you any comfort? I guess I'll jump Pressure. in. Yeah, <laughs> I'll jump in. Um, so I, I uh, as a chief registrar, um, I personally haven't had direct relationship to that code. I'm sure the Getty facility and uh, et cetera have um, worked closely with it. Um, so I can't really speak to that exactly, but I can agree that we um, we do work closely with our underwriters um, to make sure all the necessary uh, precautions are um, taking place, uh, all the necessary preparations, you know, facility maintenance with roofs, sprinkler systems, uh, the grounds, you know, tree trimming, brush clearing, staff training, uh, ensuring that we have a defensible space around the museum buildings. Um, and we obviously try and follow any suggestions that they might have uh, that helps to keep our uh, insurance uh, premiums as low as possible as well. So that is the benefit. Um, and you, you guys said you, you do kind of pay, you pay or you pay, you either pay higher premiums or you pay to invest into your building and into your community and the protection of the cultural objects um, you know, under our roof. Obviously, the last thing anybody wants is an insurance claim, so we certainly do want to follow those um, those recommendations uh, in terms of what's been learned from the past, from different experiences. Um, and as we know, you know, the artworks can't can't be replaced, but we um, so it's it's really better to invest in the in the facility and in the staff you know staff training and all. So is that sort of a three way conversation between you? your insurance and your underwriters and the facilities? Definitely, definitely. I would throw in their grounds, the grounds folks as well, and local, you know, first responders, local fire department. Yeah. Which is a great turnover to Jared, because Jared is a anomaly of a firefighter and a collections care professional, so. Everything in one. Yes, the unicorn. <laughs> With uh, the NFPA standards, um, think about it that if, if you're not following those standards, you're 
pretty much actively hindering any type of rescue or preservation effort for your institution. You know, it's, you've got all these people that come together and with this knowledge saying, this is what you need to do to help give your uh, museum or institution the, its best fighting chance to preserve your collection in the case of emergency. And if you're not following that, you're really making the job harder for, for the first responders and uh, you know, putting your museum at a greater loss then, which is gonna cost you more in insurance. So it really does kind of help to study kind of those, those guidelines and then making sure that you're implementing them in your institutions. That way, when you, if and when you do have an emergency, you'll have the best case outcome for it. So. Jared, yesterday when we were talking briefly to prepare for this, you had a great insight into how, when we ask the firefighters to come and tour our storage facilities, we are wholly focused on protecting our collections, but we don't often focus on the firefighter standpoint. So can you provide some insight into that? Yep. Um, I mean, when you first hear about, oh yeah, a firefighter, he's the guy that goes and puts the wet stuff on the red stuff, goes home, right? So it's quite a bit more complicated, of course. So um, thinking about when firefight department comes in, you got guys that are coming in wearing anywhere from like 80 to 120 pounds of gear. It's like putting a snowsuit on and then you're going to go run into an oven. So um, you're limited. You've got the, your air pack on and the bottles can last, they say, anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the size of the air bottle that's on your back. When in reality, and you're working hard, you may only have about 10 to 20 minutes at best. So, and that's to make your way in, find the fire, fight it, and then make your way out again. So, and with the conditions in these buildings, when we go into a fire, we're doing everything by touch and feel because there's generally so much smoke, you can't see more than a couple inches in front of your, your mask or your shield there. So um, we're crawling on the ground because of the, the thermal layering in the fire. Down where we're crawling around, it's only a couple hundred degrees, but you get up near the ceiling, it's well over a thousand degrees in a well-involved fire. Um, these large like storage facilities or museums are generally the most dangerous places for firefighters to actually work. When you can't see, imagine going into a, a different collections building that's completely foreign to you. You don't know the layout of it. Before you do, they're going to blindfold you, take you in the middle of it, and then spin you around until you find your way out in 10 minutes. That's if you lose your hose line and you don't know the way out, it's, it could be incredibly scary and dangerous that if you run out of air, your 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 life is in jeopardy there. So that's when we would end up calling a mayday. So um, going into these large structures like this, it's it can be you know if you're if you're not well trained or if you don't know the structure very well and you get separated from your crew or your hose line, it can be very scary. So when when you're thinking about well maybe these firefighters can just run in and help grab some items or grab something, they're they're not really worried about about grabbing stuff. They're looking for that fire and. As soon as you start putting water on that fire and putting the fire out, everything gets better. So that's what they're going to focus on. We're primarily going to worry about life safety and then preservation of property. So but the sooner we get water on that fire, the, the better conditions get, the, the safer things get for us. So, so I think can I ask, do these codes take into account the things that you're saying? So, for example, if... Um, if, you know, if, we're, if we're concerned about the size of an egress, for example, does that, you know, say have a dual purpose. Yeah, a person can exit, but also that allows, you know, say clearance for a hose or any of that stuff. Does that take the uh, the firefighting into account? A lot of times we'll want to, if at all possible, control an entry point or an exit point. As soon as, when we start, getting, we're starting to get into the fire science kind of things, but when you open or close a door, 
you're you're altering flow paths for a fire. So because the fire is going to want to find uh, oxygen and fuel, and then the heat source is what gets it going. So if it finds oxygen by someone opening a door or breaking out a window, the fire is going to go towards that flow path and it's going to grow. So if we can control those doors um, and, and kind of compartmentalize the collection, that makes life easier for us. So, and the codes, you know, uh, generally dictate like where you have different fire exits so that way people can get out of the building. If we have everyone out of the building and we can just focus on the fire and we don't have to worry about rescue efforts, that makes life a lot easier for us as well. I think purchasing the NFPA 909 and the 914, depending on your structure, is a fantastic investment for any institution. It's a dull read, but it's worth the effort. Um, so please, everyone watching this, look into that. But I think talking about, oh, go ahead, Michael. Sorry. And just so you know, you can get free access now to the NFPA codes, including 909-914 online access. So I think uh, we're going to share with all of the participants a link to that free access. Exciting. Um, But talking about like these structures and these barriers and these these, um, safety precautions we put into ourselves, I want to ask Betsy, wildfires make the news. They are very traumatic. And the Getty is setting the standard for how to respond to wildfires. So my, my question is for you is, besides what you've already mentioned, what are some ways you've been able to get prepared for a wildfire, especially institutional buy-in? Sure. Um, well, the preparation really um, has started with the facility. I mean, the facility um, was constructed, the Getty Center that is specifically in the mid nineties with um, fire prevention at the forefront of the building plan. Um, The architects and the planners understood the realities of building in Southern California, uh, a unique hilltop location, uh, annual fire seasons and Santa Ana winds, um, very dry brush. We get no rain from April to November usually. So I think they had to um, make a good plan from the very start uh, fire resistive materials, including the travertine cladding, the crushed stone on the roof, uh, the road that encircles the buildings to create a defensible space. Um, also, of course, you know, good fire suppression inside, landscape irrigation on the outside has been huge for us. We are able to uh, water our hillsides um, actively and, um, and basically saturate the, the plants. Uh, happily, that exterior um, exterior sprinkler systems can be activated remotely. In other words, some staff doesn't have to risk life and limb to come on site and get in the way of first responders are able to activate those um, the fire the irrigation systems um, remotely from their home from their phone. Obviously, um, they've also built a million gal- gallon uh, water tank to supply both the interior and the exterior sprinkler systems. Um, They've thought through um, very carefully the plants around the building, try to have moisture rich plants. Um, We also do a lot of preparation throughout the year, um, including very definitely scheduled uh, grass and tree clearing, pruning, um, brush clearing, tree trimming, I should say, making sure there's not dead leaves, dead plants, pine needles, all of that is um, fuel uh, that could be, that can catch embers. We work very hard to make sure that um, those are clear. We cleared gutters. We cleared trash left at loading docks. Uh, we clear. Uh, we could make sure that all our eaves are closed with a mesh that no embers can uh, 
uh, enter the, um, the eaves. Um, we are very vigilant to weather forecasts. Um, any red flag warning, which the Southern Californians will know well, um, the exterior irrigation has started right away. We soaked the plants and the hillsides um, and put other precautions into, into place. From a collections management perspective, we even at those red flag warnings often run a lot of our emergency collections management um, reports for the collection and exhibitions, uh, loans, et cetera. And we, we are proactive about uh, running all those emergency reports and saving them in a variety of locations so that, again, we can be prepared if, you know, long before we kind of have to be prepared. Um, on the inside, we've got the, uh, the four-hour door, four-hour fire doors and walls, the self-contained building modules, um, good fire suppression system. We also have a lot of um, extra components on site if we need them to keep things going. Um, we can change the HVAC system so it cycles through existing air or um, pushes air out as opposed to pulling air in um, so we don't bring um, smoke into the building. Um, we identify doors. Um, as you know, at the Getty, a lot of the doors ex, you know, open out into the central courtyard. So we have a lot of outdoor exterior doors, not into the public, but into the, you know, into the central part. And um, so those, we identify specific doors that will be used if, if we have to use them and all the rest are taped um, shut so that they, and it's communicated to the whoever, the few staff that's on site at that point to um, which doors they can and can't use. Um, but the security staff trains regularly for these scenarios. Um, we can talk later um, at another point too, we do a lot of tabletop exercises, which really gets the staff comfortable with the process, the knowledge, uh, the passwords, the documents, who does what and when do you do it in what order. Um, again, saving documents to different locations has been a big part of that. Um, I think those are the highlights. <laughs> I, actually, I think now would be a great time for you to tell us about what type of training and tabletops you go through. And I think it'd be great to hear from all three of our panelists what type of training they institute from their positions. So that's even start with you, if you don't mind. Sure. Sure. So we um, even before, um, even several years ago, we started um, doing tabletop exercises even before the 2017 um, Skirball fire, but it's become even more um, necessary, useful, appreciated. Um, so we sort of have a, an envelope that's got a, a, a scenario in it and that the envelope is opened and a scenario is announced. Um, and it can be anything from time of day day of the week, um, do you have public on site? Do you have an indemnified show on site? Uh, do you have um, key staff traveling in other parts of the country or other parts of the world? Um, so we do this and we try and um, we even confirm, you know, what are your passwords to those external cloud accounts? Um, you know, who's where, who's calling who, in what order are we doing things, who's um, prepping uh, information to go to the press, to go to uh, our colleagues who are curious and supportive from afar, but we want to make sure we're communicating efficiently um, and we want to know who's doing that and again and, and in what order. So those tabletop exercises have been um, have been really hugely helpful and getting people comfortable and confident uh, with the process and the location of things and, and who does what. So it's, they've, they've been great. We do it with earthquakes as well. And those are our 
two main problems that we have here. So we, we, we have earthquake moments as well as fire moments. And, and are these uh, tabletops mandatory for attendance or are they just come when people can or do you have good buy-in, yeah, I guess is what I'm asking. Um, I really pushed for it to be two, um, two um, groups. One is just within the registrar's department. Um, so I want our collections managers, I want everybody in my department to know who's doing what, who's calling who, what we need from each person, how they can help, how they can communicate. And then there's a larger, there's larger ones too within the institution, which include um, you know, facilities, security, representative, art handlers, uh, conservation, curatorial, um, and administration. So that, and usually um, mandatory for representatives from those groups, not everybody, because it just becomes too big. But usually those larger ones, you know, can be about 20, 25 people. And um, just to talk it through and to really get that comfort level. Um, Mandat I think mandatory makes it sound, I think everybody's invested in the success. So I don't think that's much arm twisting is required. So. Great. Uh, Michael, what type of training does, do you and your staff do for cultural heritage professionals? Um, so, well, one, two things, I guess. Um, first, we've been walking the fire department through each of our museums uh, to make sure they are familiar with the buildings um, familiar with the hazards, as Jarrett was pointing out. Um, you know, we walk them through the collection storage spaces, um, have discussions with them on, you know, how would they approach a fire in those areas? You know, is there anything that they could modify in terms of their approach to uh, reduce the uh, damage to collections, you know, from a firefighting standpoint? Um, so that's been going well, and we've been doing that over the past couple of years, actually. Um, our, we have a separate emergency management office that's been leading that. And we've learned things from the fire department that, you know, things that we never thought of, you know, just hearing their perspective, you know, whether it's signage or it's identifying hazards. Um, so that's been very informative for us, and it just builds that cooperative relationship between Smithsonian and the fire department. Um, and then on a different side, we've been partnering with our central collections uh, office, working with the collections community across the Smithsonian um, on training on fire response and recovery. And Beck, I think you've participated in some of this in the past too. Um, we've done two uh, live burns at a test facility, like full scale room fire where we simulate a fire in a collection storage space and we you know we invite not just collection staff but we invite our security staff our facility staff and and other staff at smithsonian so they we can uh, you know develop a coordinated response when the real thing happens um which works you know, did you burn in that good john i'm sorry which, which works did you burn in that <laughs> sorry what? <laughs> only mock collections only yes. mock collections in there. um but it's yes. pretty realistic you know we have you know paintings books we even had uh some collections in ethanol you know natural history collections in ethanol and different arrangements too you know open racks like like what's behind you in your private collection there john yeah and mm -hmm. um um you know closed metal cabinets uh open shelves textiles mm -hmm. on open racks too 
uh, just as so that uh, we have a variety of objects that, and then we, the collection staff have to go into the room after the fire once it's cooled down and try to, re, you know, recover, move and recover these objects as best we can. Um, we've also done some experimentation on, like we use a variety of different types of shelf liners and dust covers and see how those perform in actual fire. Are collection staff ever involved in that? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it from the point of view of like, you know, maybe we should consider this as we store or, you know, maybe we shouldn't store things here or there. Yes, we're, you know, that's, I think these, these trainings have spurred a lot of conversation between the collections staff and conservators and others as to, you know, what type of materials should we use to line our shelving? Because, you know, use something that's a foam plastic, it's going to adhere, melt and adhere to your collections and maybe very, very difficult to uh, remove. Um, you know, also, you know, we found that storing collections in closed metal cabinets, as you would expect, provides a lot of protection for the collections. Um, so, you know, we certainly advocate for using closed metal cabinets when, when that's possible. Right. If I could just, with like these projects we Absolutely. did, we, we, we house things in many different materials from plastics to Nomex to Tyvek to anything you possibly think of. And so when we set the, this on fire, we were not just looking at how the objects responded. We looked at how the objects responded with the typical rehousing material you would see within a collection facility. And it was very eye-opening, but at the same time, we still had to evaluate our risk. Is our risk primarily mishandling? So we still need to use the ethafoam, Or is our risk mainly fire, which melts during a fire, you know, or ethafoam melts right. during fire. So it, was, it's, it, it has burned a lot of discussion. So... We, there's a video we, I, we can share with people. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, but, Michael, can you also talk about fire extinguisher training? Oh, sure. Um, so we offer fire extinguisher training to any staff at Smithsonian that want it. Um, certainly all of our security officers who are typically the first to respond to a fire um, will, you know, are required to get extinguisher training. Um for the rest of our staff, it's really on a, um, you know, if they request it, we provide it. Uh, we certainly tell our staff that, you know, only flight of fire if you're trained and if you're comfortable. Um, and one of the key things with uh, fire extinguishers and using them is to know what extinguisher can handle and what it can't. Um, you know, in the training, we always say, you know, a small, office type trash can fire is about the limit for a fire extinguisher. Um, most extinguishers only give you about 30 seconds of um, firefighting capability and then you spent the ent entire contents of the extinguisher. Great. Jared, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Part of it too is just thinking about the different types of extinguishers that are out there. They have their advantages or disadvantages. You know, the the misting or, or foaming uh, extinguishers are great at like penetrating, get down into the seat of the fire and cool it down where, where the stuff is actually burning. But again, you're getting everything wet or you're introducing that foam, which is could be potentially kind of uh, caustic to, to certain materials. Uh, the dry chemical ones are uh, also very effective by smothering and blanketing the fire. But then, of course, you're contaminating all your artifacts with that fine powder. 
uh, CO extinguishers. They don't have any type of agent, so it's, it's probably the cleanest of them. But in the case of like really light things with paper, you got the potential of blowing the, the, uh, the fire around or the embers around a little bit more. And it doesn't necessarily get right into the deep seated embers of the fire. So that, that, like you were talking about that training, knowing if you have all three types of extinguishers, when to use them, when the, when the proper time to use each of them is, and, and when the time to say, well, this is maybe a little bit bigger than what I can handle. So maybe I should just get out too. So. Yeah, that's, those are good points. I was um, back about 10 years ago or so, um, the 909 committee was getting a lot of questions on the effect of different portable agents on collection materials. And there wasn't much information out there about that. Um, so we ended up um, starting a project and partnered with the uh, Fire Research Foundation to develop a sort of a standardized test that would evaluate each portable fire extinguishing agent and its effects on uh, various cultural resource materials, you know, whether it's copper, iron, fur, ivory, you know, anything like that. Um, and it's pretty interesting. So we developed the test and then we tested about, I can't remember the exact number, maybe 12 to 15 different types of materials with various types of agents, CO2, like you mentioned, Jared, uh, water, dry chemical, um, and then some clean agents as well. And uh, that uh, research paper is gonna be, there's gonna be a link posted so everyone can see um, and, and read up on that. I would think you no know, conservators and others would be pretty interested in that. For sure, it's an, it's an interesting report. Again, a dry document to get through, but full of useful information. <laughs> yeah, I would skip right to the uh, appendix. It has a, a matrix of all the different types of materials and all the agents and, and their effect on the uh, on those materials. And one thing to point out is that they we had you know we had conservators who were part of this project, and they they looked at the material after it was an agent was applied to it. They looked at it immediately afterwards. They looked at it. Um, like a few weeks later and a few months later, because uh, you know sometimes when you have a, a release of an agent, you may not be able to clean these materials right away, and they they may have the agent on them for some time. So we wanted to see what the long term effects were. Also, yeah, it's an incredibly interesting document for sure, and I believe it's been linked in there. So enjoy oh, everyone. Um, so we've been answering all of our questions. So I'm going to pick one from the audience. Um, so we have a question is, Michael, you're talking about all those fires at the beginning and the history of fires. And we have, what'd you say, at least one major one a year or month or yeah, this frequently? Worldwide, at least. Right. So how, what is the percentage of those that are contained effectively versus massive loss? Do you know? That's a great question. Um, and I don't know if I've ever seen a, st a statistic on that. Um in the U.S., we have ENFERS, which is a sort of the national fire database that they take all the fire reports reports from the fire departments and and sort of categorize the fires and come up with with statistics. Um, but I don't recall seeing you no know, 
what the success rate is basically. Um, you know, a lot of times the fire is contained, you know, it, if it's really successfully contained, it may not even make it into that database. Um, contained. And that's what it depends on what you mean by contain, right? If it's contained to a single space or if it's contained to the object of origin, um, you know, if it's contained to the object of origin, like it's a cooking fire and you smother it, that'll probably just never get reported. If the fire department shows up, and Jared, you may have more information on this than me. Um, I think if the fire department shows up, then typically it's going to get into the database. Yeah, if if we show up, everything, every action, even if it's a false alarm, goes into that database, and it just depends on what type of alarm. It could be a good intent. It could be a, a, you know, a mistriggered uh, alarm system. So everything that will go into that database, but it's then we kind of classify it as just a small cooking fire or it could be a room and contents fire, a partial floor fire, all the way up to a fully involved structure, which means everything's on fire. So it's um, that that enfers that you're talking about lets us kind of break down so that way you can see how far did the fire really travel and how how intense was it. So. Oh, that's interesting. I guess there's no real definition of the word "quote unquote" contained, which I was For unaware us, of. Containment is. Uh, stopping the fire from spreading and then extinguishing it, going through overhaul and making sure that there's no extension. And then at that point where we're just clean up and, and head out. So, Okay. Well, I'm going to revert this back to collections care. Um, so we all have to fill out, most institutions fill out a general facilities report, which asked about our fire prevention methods. And one of the things that comes up is a lot of institutions still do not have uh, sprinkler systems or they rely heavily on fire um, extinguishers and they've had loans rejected because they don't have uh, fire sprinkler systems. So overall, like, do you feel like a building is less safe because it doesn't have a sprinkler system? And if not, are there cheap methods people can do to prevent fires? Or how do we feel about this in general? Who do you want to answer first? All of you. Whoever <laughs> is willing to take first. I, I'd say that if a building is not sprinkled, you know, there's there's no fire suppression system. You are your your collections, your your building is at a little bit more of a risk. Um, you know, as technology progresses, we're starting to see alternatives to water systems, and I don't know the science behind or the the statistics behind a lot of them. Maybe Michael, you know, but. Stuff like uh, there's these fireballs uh, that are produced by AFO that uh, when they heat up to a certain temperature, they'll burst and throw this chemical agent all over around them in the immediate area. So that's an alternative to uh, like a wet system. Uh, uh, there are different ways to like be able to push CO2 into a room if a fire is detected. So, but uh, and again, Michael, maybe you know a little bit more about some of those systems, but I, I'm just starting to hear about them and, and learn some of this new technology. So, yeah, some, some of those um, alternatives, I'd say, you know, may be appropriate for areas where you don't typically have personnel, especially like CO2, of course, um, from an asphyxiation standpoint. And I, I don't have much experience, but I've heard of the fireballs and I don't even know what they're called officially. Um, I have heard of those and, you know, I think I've heard of them being used in maybe some remote facilities, um, you know, where you don't have any water available. Um, also, 
water mist is something that you know, we haven't put any water mist systems into the, any Smithsonian buildings yet. But I know National Gallery of Art has put it into some of their galleries. So it is water-based, but uses a, a fraction of the amount of water that a sprinkler system uses. Of course, you know, there are probably more maintenance because you're using high-pressure pumps and high-pressure piping systems for, the, for these water mist systems. Um, on the question of you know, the risk of putting collections in a non-sprinkler building. Uh, I certainly agree with Jared that you are at a higher risk. Um, you know, even when you factor in the risk of water damage, um, I think you're at a much higher risk. Um, you know, if you have a fire in a building, the fire department comes in, uses hoses, they're going to be using 10 to 50 times as much water as uh, what a sprinkler system would use. Uh, sprinklers are going to typically most fires are, are put out with one or two sprinklers, um, and you know sprinklers are putting out maybe thirty to fifty gallons per minute, generally speaking. Um, so that's uh, really a small amount of water. And um, one thing I always just like to point out is that I don't think I've ever seen uh, a museum a sprinkler museum destroyed by fire. Um, if, if a building is fully sprinklered, at most, you might lose the contents of, you know, part of a room, but you're not going to lose an entire collection or entire museum. Betsy. Betsy, yeah, you all have an active loaning loan program. We do. We do. And we do do a thorough review of those um, uh, general facility reports. Um, and focus heavily on the fire uh, prevention section of those reports. Um, we, uh, we do note when they don't have uh, sprinkler systems and try and understand how they will solve it. Um, everything that Jared and, and Michael have said um, makes sense and I, I agree with, of course, um, but we do try and keep the loan process going and we do, um, uh, we do try and take a holistic approach on, on the venue, the potential borrower, and try and understand their whole approach to everything that they do. And are they, you know, in, invested in, um, you know, a, a professional, um, you know, professional standards in terms of security and HVAC and staff training. Um, and so it's, we try and sort of understand the whole, the whole picture, not just not any one aspect of it in, in that way and try and then make a considered decision about the object, value, role in the collection, uniqueness, things like that. So we try and have, we try and, you know, be thoughtful about the whole picture, but it's a, it's a, it's a very valid point about the, about sprinklers being the, it's so, so key. Great. Um, John, you want to do one last question, summary question for everybody? Um, Sure. Summary question, huh? <laughs> uh, I, I, um, I mean, look, there's, there's so much to, to discuss here, but um, I mean, look, let's maybe let's start with, uh, with Jared with this, but like, ultimately, what is a, a step that every museum could take tomorrow to make them better prepared uh, and, and safer from fire? And I want to start with Jared too, because I want to, I want to make sure that we address um, the capabilities of institutions that don't have maybe the size and the scope and the resources of a Getty or a Smithsonian. 
I'd have to say it's it's you know, knowledge and training are going to be your most important thing. Uh, my grandma, who's she's a great lady, she was uh, talking with her friends, and she, of course she's proud of all of her grandkids and great grandkids. But um, she was telling her friends what we do, and that I'm a firefighter. And the person asked her, "Well, what kind of a guy runs into a burning building?" And she told him, "A well-trained one." <laughs> and that's true. It's we train constantly to do this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Museums should be doing the same thing. You should be training and and try to increase your knowledge base as much as possible, as often as possible. Um, training should include uh, if your if your museum doesn't have an incident command system for these uh, uh, types of disasters, you need to learn about it and start to implement that immediately. The hardest thing with with managing a disaster is managing your people and resources, and that's what the incident command system does so well. Fire department uses it all the time, and it can apply very easily to uh, to, to the museum world. Uh, I was up in Midland for when the, uh, the flooding happened up there, trying to, to help rescue some of the collections for, for those museums. And by using that incident command system, we were able to manage over 300 volunteers and uh, save, we moved and saved uh, tens of thousands of artifacts within four days. And the only reason we were able to do that so efficiently was that incident command system. Um, the other thing then too, is just getting together with your local fire department, talking to them, uh, offering to have a training. Like with my department, we'll do walkthroughs of certain buildings or industries or uh, large structures. So that way we can see what it looks like on the inside. And then their, their safety people will be able to kind of pick our brains and say, hey, what do we do in this these certain situations? So. If you can get the fire department in there and then give them a tour so that way they can see what the inside looks like, it'll make them more effective at finding a fire if there is one, and then also makes them feel a little bit safer. Um, letting them kind of, uh, or telling them uh, what yours, what is in your collections and too, so that way they understand the various hazards and threats. Like you get some of these older clothing, textile collections that have arsenic and mercury and formaldehyde in them. Um, knowing that that's a hazmat situation. So even after the fire, the, the firefighters know to decon their gear to make sure that they're not getting sick later on. Um, talking with those guys when they're in there and understanding the flow paths within your museum, so that way you know how the fire would behave in your building. Uh, understanding the different types of smoke damage, where when you get that black smoke from incomplete con, uh, combustion versus the whiter, lighter smoke from complete combustion and how to clean or how to not damage your artifacts worse by grabbing something and grinding that soot and smoke into them. Um, trying to compartmentalize your, your collection as much as possible. So that way you're, you're stopping the fire from spreading nearly as quickly. Even if it's just a, a simple hollow core door and making sure you close it every time, that'll buy your department you know 10 to 15 more minutes to put that fire out before it breaks into the next room. So. These trainings uh, are just incredibly important. And then the more you know about what to do in the situation, the the more you'll be able to save and and the safer your collection will be. Michael, any any last thoughts? What can we do that can uh, change our situation just right now? Well, I totally agree with what Jared was saying about training um, and fire prevention. and, you know, typically fire prevention is sort of the, the lowest hanging fruit. There, there's a lot you can do in terms of your operations and training that are really low cost. Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention was that in NFPA 909, 
there's it, it steps you through a process of developing a protection plan. Um, so it's sort of a step-by-step process where museum professionals can you know work with museum management and develop a protection plan that you know helps you define what your goals and objectives are in terms of, of fire protection or protecting your collections and your museum. You know, it helps you do a vulnerability assessment. You know, whether it's maybe your greatest vulnerability is, is the you know wildfire, maybe it is an, an old electrical system, faulty electrical system. You know, it helps you develop what your vulnerabilities are. Look at that, and then develop a strategy for addressing them. Um, and a lot of that is going to be fire prevention, whether it's you know, controlling ignition sources, it's managing the combustibles in your museum, uh, exhibit construction, you know, addressing you know how you handle special events. Special events can can impose new hazards that you don't normally have on everyday uh, occurrence in your museums. Um, so it kind of gives you how a sort of a way to do a structured approach to, to fire prevention, fire protection. Let's see any last advice from, uh, from your experience, especially if it's wildfire related. <laughs> um, um, everything that um, Jared and, and Michael just said, uh, um, I, I totally, um, totally agree with in terms of, you know, having the fire working closely with your local fire department, doing the walkthroughs, um, I'll, I'll agree. Preparation, training, um, um, all, all true. Um, from a just a slightly different angle, um, I after an event, we have found to be incredibly helpful as a debrief. You get all the right people around the table: security, facilities, um, collections, art handlers, administration. You get them around the table, and you and you say what worked, what didn't. Um, Record it in a way that you can find it later, train based on the, um, the lessons learned. Um, and that has been a huge, um, a huge uh, benefit to the Getty when we, between the 2017 Skirball fire and the 2019 Getty fire, we had those moments and um, we learned so much. Um, nothing focuses the mind like having a situation where you had a, um, it came close enough to, to really focus everyone's um, attention on the training again on the facility. We've also had a lot of staff turnover, turnover as certain folks have you know uh, retired. So it came as a moment with new staff. You had to retrain, re-have that conversation um, with the new folks to make sure that they knew what their role was, um, both you know for, at every level and in every department. So the debriefs have been um, hugely helpful. Um, thanks so much. Uh, Robin, any last comments from uh, from our chat that we should be aware of? I have a couple people um, ask some questions, which we've been throwing around a lot of links in the chat. So that's been fun to try to keep up with that because yeah. <laughs> there's so many good resources out there. Um, so that's been kind of fun to take up with. Someone just added also that it is hard to over overemphasize the importance of keeping fire doors closed for reducing fire risk, which I think that's something that is uh, good to push if you have access to fire doors, for sure. 
Yeah, we also got a question about wet pipe versus dry pipe. And uh, Michael, I know you could talk interminably about that. So instead, yeah. we link them to your C2CC lecture you gave a few months ago. Oh, good. Since we don't have much time left. Yeah, Great. that question is a good one. But both Becca and I are kind of like, that's a, that's a long discussion for the last <laughs> 10 minutes. So we're not sure if this is the time to really talk about that. Right. But, but it is an important topic. And, and Michael has done a C2CC talk about this, which is now linked in the chat box. So please check that out to learn more about fire prevention. Um, so, I mean, since we're close on time, John, I'll just say thank you for having me and letting me represent the ARCS Emergency Programming Subcommittee. Um, please, um, you know, look out for more of our programming. We're trying to do one program a month. So look on our, look on ARCS social media, read the ARCS updates. We're always trying to make a splash to help you all be better prepared. But also I can't thank the panelists enough and I'm gonna let John really thank you, but thank you so much from me and my committee. Thanks so much to everybody. <laughs> so uh, I do wanna say, I wanna reiterate that, uh, you know, the, the video, as you watch it back, the chat will be available. So if you're missing the links, um, it'll, it'll remain up there. Also uh, we'll add the links when we uh, post the podcast. Uh, so they'll be in the podcast description as well. So yes, let's, uh, once again, thank you so much to the panelists, uh, Michael, Jared, Betsy, and our special co-host, Mecca, um, and Robin as always. So um, remember to hit the subscribe button for our YouTube channel so that you get notified every time we go live. Check us out on social media at Arcs for All and uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And uh, yeah, we're doing some great Instagram stuff these days. So you definitely want to check that out. Um, shout out to Virtual Connections Task Force for rocking that. Um, and I think that's basically it for today. The podcast should be out by the end of the week. And um, yeah, with that, thanks so much for joining us and participating in the chat. And look for one more ARC chat to happen this year um, in early December. We'll be back for one more episode of 2020. And then we get to look forward to 2021, people. So let's think positive on that for the next year. Thanks, everyone, Thanks for, joining everyone us. for joining us. And now, a day in the life. Hello, my name is Jacqueline Cabrera. I'm currently a contract registrar in Los Angeles, California. Prior to going independent, I worked at the J. Paul Getty Museum for 20 years as a registrar. I have also worked at the Long Beach Museum of Art and Sotheby's The Auction House. So overall, I have about 27 years of experience as a registrar and collections manager. In the 27 years of working as a museum registrar, I've had the opportunity to meet so many colleagues from around the world, from various European nations, Latin America, Australia, the Pacific Islands, and such places as Russia, Tunisia, and Egypt. I've also had the opportunity to provide training workshops for my colleagues and lectures. And this year, along with Monique Abadilla from the De Young Museum in San Francisco, provide digital internship tutorials via Zoom calls. Out of all these opportunities, the one that has so far stood out for me as a unique experience is my connection with the Egyptian registrars. Via our professional conferences, I had the opportunity to meet two registrars and we formed an ongoing online connection. Then in January 2009, through the American Research Center in Egypt, my colleague Corey Gooch from the Fry Art Museum and I went to Cairo to conduct a two-day workshop. Though they had been thoroughly trained for a few years through the ARCE, we were to bring a Western Museum Registrar perspective to their learning agenda. 
So Corey and I prepared lectures on various registration and collection management topics. During our time at the museum, we also had the opportunity to walk through the galleries when they were closed to the public. I can't tell you how surreal this was for me. Archaeology is one of my favorite topics, and I've always dreamed of going to the Cairo Museum. So to be walking among such wonderful objects in these galleries was such a thrill. But the thrills didn't stop there. As a thank you for all of our work, the former Minister of Antiquities, Dr. Zahi Hawass, provided Corey and I with a gold access card. It was all in Arabic, so we weren't quite sure what it said. We could only read our names in Western letters. I still have this card, and I really treasure it. The card gave us access to many locations that normal tourists did not have. In addition to access, we were also to provide we were also provided with a personal driver who drove us around to many locations. The following three locations were not open to the public, or they were closed for the digging season, but we were given access to them due to our connection to the registrar training program. First, it was in the Valley of the Kings we got to enter into King Tut's tomb, and then to Kent Week's K-12 tomb, which is where Ramses the Pharaoh had all of his sons buried. It's a very important site in Egyptology. In the Valley of the Queens, we got to enter Queen Nefertiti's tomb. Now, this, team, this tomb had been conserved by the Getty Conservation Institute, where Corey had started her career at the Getty, so it was a special moment for her to see the tomb in person. As you can imagine, it was amazing to be inside these tombs with no one but ourselves and our guide. I recall that when we would arrive at the various archaeological locations, the person in charge would always say, you must be very important. Not many foreigners are given this access card. It truly was amazing. Corey and I still can't believe we were given such visitor, visitor status, even at this time. Corey and I spent two weeks traveling around this wonderful country. And had it not been for the Arab Spring riots that happened a year later, I know that I would have gone back on a regular basis to keep in touch with the Egyptian registrars and to provide up-to-date training that was relevant. And I still hope to return one day. Being a museum registrar gives us access to so many behind-the-scenes opportunities that not everyone who works in the museum gets to have. After 27 years, I still feel I have chosen my museum path wisely. I look forward to more adventures out there waiting to take place, more collections to discover and see, and more colleagues to meet. Thanks again for listening. Go wash your hands.